Well, open your Bibles once again to Revelation chapter 20. I'm speaking on the great white throne judgment this morning. A number of years ago, when our children were at home, I took our son, Ben, who loved airplanes at that time, to the Colorado Air Show that was held out east of Denver. One of the highlights of the air show, and one of the parts that we enjoyed the most, was when the wing walker, they called them, Lori was her name, Lori Lynn Ross, the wing walker, got on the biplane and they took off and went up and did some stunts and and came back down. It probably begs the question, why would someone get out of the cockpit and stand on an airplane while it's moving through the air, slicing through the air? It's a pretty, pretty obvious question. Why would anyone want to do that? Well, the day after we saw the show, we saw it on a Saturday, the day after they, they did several shows was a Sunday. We weren't able to go, but on that next day, when the plane, the pilot, and Lori Lynn, the wing walker, they were coming in for their landing, the right brake hung up when they touched down on the runway going about 50 to 60 miles an hour, and the plane flipped over. And Lori was able to jump and roll to safety. The plane was pretty much demolished, wrecked, and even the pilot escaped without any serious injury. Some people seem to have nine lives. We've all said that before, probably, in some situation. They laugh at safety. We question their sanity because of some of the things that they do. Gambling with your life is one thing. Gambling with your life is one thing, but to gamble with your soul is foolish beyond expectation, beyond description, maybe we would say. The Bible says, it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment, Hebrews 9, 27. So the Bible is is absolutely clear, not just in that verse, but many other places, that after death, we face judgment. We will face the judgment of God. There is a scheduled appointment with death that no man or no woman or no person that's ever lived will ever escape. And for those who die in their sins, they will stand before the great white throne judgment of God and be sentenced to eternal punishment. Now, the Bible tells us this judgment is great. It's called the great white throne. It's great for at least three reasons that I want you to note with me here this morning. And before we do, let's just review. We are studying eschatology. Eschatos means last things, last days. And so we've looked at the rapture from uh, different passages of Scripture. And while the saints are taken and translated to heaven, and we are before the judgment seat of Christ, receiving our reward, and then we enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb, on earth, after the signing of the covenant between the Antichrist and the nation of Israel, then the seven years of tribulation begin. The second half of that being called the great tribulation. So the rapture, 
judgment seat of Christ, marriage supper of the Lamb, tribulation on earth. And at the end of that period, of course, the Antichrist is very active during the tribulation period. At the end of that period, he breaks his covenant with Israel and demands worship. The nations come, Gog and Magog particularly, from the north and from the south and from the east to destroy Israel. And the Lord Jesus comes and destroys them in what's called the Battle of Armageddon. So that ends the tribulation. That's called Christ's second coming. Because at the rapture, he doesn't actually come to the earth. But at the second coming, he comes to the earth and touches down at the Mount of Olives, or at least stands on the Mount of Olives. And then after the earth is cleaned up, the millennial kingdom begins, the Bible tells us. It's mentioned six times in the passage of Scripture that we read this morning. Mille, meaning a thousand annum a year. So millennial kingdom, a thousand year reign that's been prophesied really throughout the entire Old Testament. And it comes to pass right here we see in Revelation chapter 20. At the end of the millennial reign of Christ, says he will rule with a rod of iron. So he provides comfort to us, but gives no quarters to those that would rebel because people come into the millennial kingdom in their natural bodies. Some come into the kingdom, and as, the, as we studied last week, they live a long time. Some of them, like the antediluvian patriarchs, they live eight, nine hundred years. The Bible says if you die at a hundred, you're a child. You're like an infant. Christ is ruling. The carnivorous animals have lost that instinct. We live a long time. There's not disease. There's no canes. There's no walkers. There's no wheelchairs, etc. But at the end, Satan is loosed to prove the point that mankind's problem is not his environment. That's a perfect environment. It's not his environment. It is his heart that is the problem. And mankind rebels against God under the foment of Satan who is released from hell and brings about this rebellion. Then the great white throne judgment takes place, which is a judgment for the lost and their assignment. So that's what we read about a moment ago, verses 11 through 14. Notice back with me in verse 11, it says, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, whose face the earth and heavens fled away. If you've ever seen the Star Trek movies, you know, when they kick it in, I don't know if it's called hyperdrive or hyperspace, you know, they just really kick the engines in and all the stars just, everything just flees away. That's the picture here. All, everything in the universe just flees away. No place to hide, no place to escape. It's only God and the souls that have been created down through time that are lost. Heaven and earth flee away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, lesser sinners, meek people, people of no renown or fame, and great sinners, those that maybe, like we talked about last week, who murdered millions of people, caused the death of multiplied millions of people down through 
uh, time, those individuals will be gathered as well. The small and great stand before God, and the books are open, and another book. It's a multiplicity of books, at least two. And the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the things, according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. I'll stop reading there. Notice about the great white throne judgment. It is great because of its summons. It is great because of its summons. God presides, no one escapes. God presides, no one escapes. Look at verse 11. It says, the living on earth will be there. There are people that are born throughout the millennial kingdom and probably large families and people having many, many, many children because they live a long time and their health is essentially perfect. So many children are born. They conform because Jesus Christ is ruling from the throne of David. And they conform because he's ruling with a rod of iron. But in their heart, there may be rebellion that comes to the surface when Satan is loose. The living on earth will be there. There are people living that come right up into the time of the great white throne judgment and rebel, and then they're judged. Now, all of us have read of fugitives who've escaped the due process of the law and punishment. It may be a, a Nazi war criminal that hid out in South America and lived out their lives. Or maybe it was a, a drug trafficker or a human trafficker that escaped penalty and capture. Or maybe it was an embezzling employee that stole millions from the company and, and got away with it and never faced the charges. Sometimes they get caught and they post bail and they skip town. But not in this case. Nobody avoids this judgment bar. Everyone who has ever lived from the dawn of creation to the consummation of the human age will be at this judgment. Every lost individual who's died without God's forgiveness will be assembled. You can count on this. If you refuse God's love you will face his wrath. It's just a true statement. It's a true proverb. If you reject God's love, if you reject God's sacrifice of Christ on the cross, you will face his wrath. The Bible tells us. Now, you know, I've reviewed with you before, there are two main judgments in Scripture, a judgment for believers and a judgment for unbelievers. The judgment seat of Christ, JSC, you could abbreviate it, and the great white throne judgment for unbelievers. The judgment seat of Christ is a judgment of dedication. It's talked about 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, and it determines our rewards based upon our labors for Christ and our motive behind those labors. Because you can labor for Christ for personal recognition. It is the judgment seat of Christ is a judgment of dedication. The great white throne is a judgment of damnation. The judgment seat of Christ, then the great white throne judgment is for unbelievers. It's a judgment of damnation. It's recorded, of course, right here in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. And the judge is Jesus, not God the Father. Don't make that mistake. Jesus said in John 5, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. So Jesus Christ is sitting 
on the great white throne judgment as he's been sitting on the throne of David throughout the millennial kingdom. And all judgment is entrusted to him. Notice the encompassing statement that we read a moment ago. That all sinners, just describing all sinners, both small and great, verse 12. They stand before the judgment bar of divine justice. A precautionary search is made for their names. It says that the book of life is searched. Now, obviously, the Bible, when it uses the word book, because in this day, it was scrolls. It's translated now in our English Bible, book. But it's the idea that all the records, and God is is a meticulous record keeper. All the records are searched to see if the name, so it's like a stopgap. It's a safety measure. God has the angels search to make sure that someone is not mistakenly missed in the book of life and they're getting ready to face the great white throne judgment. The book of life is searched. A precautionary search is made in for the names in the book of life, not being found there, another set of books is consulted. We're not told exactly what those books are, but we would call them the book of the lost. Or maybe the book of deeds of the lost. Because it says, and out of those books they are judged. In other words, every word that they spoke, every deed that they did, every thought that they had that was sinful or contrary to God is brought into light in their judgment and in their condemnation. All recorded by divine omniscience. This provides the evidence for the eternal condemnation. You don't try someone without evidence. And God has been keeping meticulous evidence in his record books, the Bible says. The living on earth will be there. Second, the Bible tells us the lost of all time will be there, verses 12 through 14. This is so important, this judgment, that even the abode of the dam, hell, coughs up its occupants, the Bible tells us. Remember that hell is a holding tank. It is not a permanent place because hell's occupants are cast into the lake of fire. That is the permanent place. So Hades, Sheol, cough up their dead and they're assigned to the lake of fire. Can you imagine that? It's just beyond comprehension. I've been thinking about it this week. Imagine hell's doors being opened for the first time in Five, six, seven thousand years, maybe a shaft of light breaks into that bottomless pit, that abyss that Satan has been in for the last thousand years. And the moans and the cries and the sobs cease for a moment. Someone shouts, they're letting us out. We paid for our sins or we paid for our deeds. And I've been here for 500 years. Somebody says, I've been here for 5,000 years. And like a tsunami, like a wave, they pile out of hell running. Only to lay their eyes upon the great white throne and him who sits upon it. 
and realize that their judgment is now being sealed. Can you imagine the roller coaster of emotions as they stand before the righteous judge of the universe, the Lord Jesus, whom they know they rejected and realize that their fate is forever sealed. It's beyond comprehension. As I said this week, as I have studied for this message, my heart has been heavy. I take no joy in preaching this message. I can't imagine any pastor anywhere, any Bible believer anywhere, taking any joy in preaching about hell and the eternal condemnation of the lost. It's such a heavy, sobering, weighty topic and doctrine and text. But we must let the Bible speak and understand what it says, even if we shudder at the subject matter. I mean, I thought about skipping over the great white throne and dealing today with heaven and the eternal state, but I don't feel that's fair to eschatology. I don't feel that's fair to Bible preaching. So understand that. Second, not only is it great because of its summons, but it's great because of its singularity, I would say. Billions will be judged, but individually. Billions will be judged, yet individually. The Bible says in verse 13, every man will answer. Every man will answer to God for his life. Every person will stand alone. They won't be able to stand by their partner. They won't be able to stand by their parents. They won't be able to stand behind their pastor. Every man will stand alone. There will be no high-powered attorneys arguing their case, coming to their defense. There will be no loopholes in the law to exploit. There will be no appeals to higher authority because there is no higher authority. There is no higher court. There is no higher judge than Jesus Christ. Nothing but silence and emptiness and abandonment will accompany the condemned. Every false teacher will be there. From the shaman, the witch doctor in Africa, to the Buddhist priest in Asia, to the health and wealth gospel preacher in America, and all of their adherents will be there and be assembled. Arrogant individuals whom we all know. Arrogant individuals who flippantly dismiss God and the Bible and prophecy. The flippant attitude that they have will change completely as they stand before God's judgment bar. And they will regret it with the deepest kind of regret and remorse, not repentance, but deep regret and remorse for their decisions. Many times people do that at the end of a Christ-rejecting life. Many times they do that even before they die. Let me give you a couple of examples. Francois Voltaire, Voltaire, you know that name. Voltaire laughed and mocked God and spent much of his life fighting Christianity. 
He said by the end of his life, Christianity would no longer exist, that the Bible would go out of vogue. After he died, his house became a house where they printed Bibles in, Voltaire's house. But with his dying breath, he said, I am abandoned by God and man. I shall go to hell. Oh, God, it is hell to die alone. Thomas Paine rejected Christ throughout his life. When death arrived, he said, I wish that I had never lived. Thomas Hobbes, another atheist in opposition to Christ, wrote books denying the gospel. His dying comments were, I am taking a fearful leap into the unknown. Sobering. Every man will answer to God for their life and their decision about Christ. Second, they will be judged according to their works. It's great because of its singularity that they will answer to God and they will answer to God for what they did in their life. Verses 12 and 13, let's reread them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. The books were open. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to their works. It mentions that twice. Decisions for salvation in Christ are made in this life. This is the only opportunity that we have. There are no second chances in eternity, even after suffering in hell for long, long eons. Deeds reveal the beliefs of a person and the conditions of their heart. Your beliefs reveal the condition of your heart and what you really believe. Every foul word spoken, every wicked thought that was brewed, every deceitful deed that was ever done will be taken into account, the Bible says. There are two sets of books here. The book of life, which, by the way, is mentioned eight times in the New Testament. Our name is written down when we get saved in the Lamb's book of life. It's forever recorded in the Lamb's book of life, and it cannot be blotted out. Even though Moses appealed to God and said, Lord, let my name be blotted out of the book of life, or Paul said that in reference to the Jewish people that he loved. There's also a record of deeds, as we've read, that are taken into account for assignment and punishment in eternity. You say, wait a minute, hell's hell. The Bible indicates that there are levels of hell. There are levels of judgment. Jesus himself said to those who were living in Chorazin and Bethsaida, he said, it'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah. We all know Sodom and Gomorrah and what Sodom and Gomorrah was famous for, their wickedness, their perversion. He says, it'll be better for those in Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for those in Chorazin and Bethsaida. Why would he make such a statement? Matthew chapter 10, verse 15. Why? Because Sodom and Gomorrah had one very dim light 
one very poor gospel, if we can use that term in the Old Testament setting, one dim light, one very poor gospel testimony, and his name was Lot, Abraham's nephew. Lot wasn't a good testimony. He wasn't an example of what the Israelites were supposed to be. He wasn't an example to them of what God's light and truth was all about. So they had very poor gospel ministry witness. And, and he's saying Chorazin and Bethsaida had the preaching of Jesus Christ and the preaching that's given in the context of the disciples preaching in those regions. He's saying to those that were given much light, there will be a heftier, weightier judgment. And to those that have little light, the judgment won't be as severe, although it will still be hell. I may be speaking to someone who has heard the gospel many times. And yet you've hardened your heart, closed your mind, and never responded. Your judgment, my understanding of the Bible, will be much more severe than those who've not had the same gospel witness. If you die in your sins, you'll be judged more severely than those that haven't had the same opportunities. Listen to what the Bible says, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Jesus Christ came to do for you what you could not do for yourself. We recognize that? We agree with that? Jesus Christ came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. We could not save ourselves. We could not live a perfect life. We could not atone for our sins. That's why Jesus Christ came. He came to pay a debt that he did not owe because we owe a debt that we cannot pay. He came to pay a debt he did not owe because we owe a debt we cannot pay. Third, this judgment is called great because of its sentence. It's great because of its sentence. There are no appeals. This is final. The Bible tells us it's in the lake of fire. Verses 14 and 15 tell us that. Listen to Revelation 21, 8. It says, But the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and the sexually immoral and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So it mentions the lake of fire, and it says that this is the second death. And this is certainly only one of many lists of typical sinners in, that are brought up in the New Testament who die without Jesus Christ. This is only a partial listing, certainly not exhaustive. We get that. But if you die in your sins, you face the judgment of the great white throne. So the point being is this is the most severe consequences imaginable. The lake of fire is eternal damnation. Let that sink in for a moment. Eternal damnation. The abode of the lost where the doomed cry and moan and, and beg for mercy in their agony and in their thirst and in their regret. 
but their cries only turn to imps of smoke and mock them as they fade away. The lake of fire is eternal damnation. It's called the second death. Kind of an interesting term. Wait a minute, second death. But that term is used. We understand that. Jesus warned that we should fear the second death more than the first death. Jesus warned us about that. We should fear the second death more than the first death because this death is eternal. You've heard the statement. I've said it. Certainly not original with me. It's been around probably for ages. If you are born only once, you will die twice. If you are born twice, you only die once. We get that. If you're only born physically and you're never born spiritually, you will die twice. You'll die physically and you will die spiritually, eternally. But if you're born twice, you're born physically and you're born spiritually, you only die once. And that's the physical death. To escape the second death, you must have a second birth. So I would ask, are you sure that you've had a second birth? Have you been born again, as the Bible says? I'm not asking you if you're a church member. I'm not asking you if you're a good person. I'm not asking you if you're religiously inclined. I'm asking you, have you been born again? Or you'll face the second death. John 3.18 says, He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. In other words, if you haven't believed, you're already under the condemnation and facing the judgment of God is what John says there. In the very context of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Two verses later, John 3.18. To go to hell, you have to stumble over the cross. You have to stumble over what Jesus did to prevent you from going to hell, where God's love was so lavishly displayed when Christ poured out his lifeblood. It's in the lake of fire, the second death, and it's for all eternity. Again, beyond our comprehension. If in this life, I don't think we can conceive of eternity, forever, eons. Because in this life, we always have a glimmer of hope. Even in the worst of situations, we have a glimmer of hope, I guess. We, we always think tomorrow could be better. We almost have, always have hope kind of built into us, into our DNA. That's applicable in business ventures. There's, there's people here in the auditorium today that have gone bankrupt and lost it all. They've been embezzled from and, and stolen from or the tides turned and, and they lost all of their financial resources. But they always say, well, I can come back. I'll learn from those mistakes or those things will be not repeated again. And and they come back. We lose our health. We think, well, I just got to get this surgery out of the way. I, I need some medicine. Or there's a doctor out there or a health protocol that I can, I can lay hold of and I'll regain my health. You lose your family or there's some tragedy and disaster. You think, well, just like Job, I can start over. Somebody out there. 
But if you lose your soul, you lose your soul, there's no hope. There's no second chance. There's no do-over. I don't think we can comprehend that. I don't think our minds can get wrapped around that. Burnham Shattuck wrote a poem in 1894 that was later put to music. It's called The Great Judgment Morning. Let me read it to you. Maybe you've heard it before, even heard someone sing it. I dreamed that the great judgment morning had dawned and the trumpet had blown. I dreamed that the nations had gathered to judgment before the white throne. From the throne came a bright shining angel, and he stood on the land and the sea, and he swore with his hand raised to heaven that time would no longer be. And oh, what a weeping and wailing as the lost were told of their fate. They cried for the rocks and the mountains. They prayed, but their prayer was too late. The rich man was there, but his money had melted and vanished away. A pauper he stood in the judgment. His debts were too heavy to pay. The great man was there, but his greatness, when death came, was left far behind. The angel that opened the records, not a trace of his greatness could find. And oh, what a weeping and wailing, as the lost were told of their fate. They cried for the rocks and the mountains. They prayed, but their prayer was too late. I'll skip down to the last stanza. The moral man came to the judgment, but self-righteous rags would not do. The men who had crucified Jesus had passed off as moral men too. The soul that had put off salvation, not tonight, I'll get saved by and by. No time to think of religion. At last they had found time to die. And oh, what a weeping and wailing as the lost were told of their fate. They cried for the rocks and the mountains. They prayed, but their prayer was too late. We all know it's very sobering. And as Christians, it should compel us, motivate us to speak to others that don't know Christ, even within our own family and our sphere of influence. So it's great because of its sentence. I put in my conclusion here, this is called the great white throne judgment because of its summons, its singularity, and its sentence, but most of all because of its Savior, the Savior who bridged the chasm between heaven and hell, bringing God's righteousness to the need of our sinfulness. That's why it's so great. Let's pray together. Father, so somber and serious and weighty and heavy is this passage of Scripture. We don't dismiss it, but we like to flee from it at times. But we know it's true. We know it's recorded in Holy Writ. We know that there has to be a just judgment for those who live and die with their sins. And thank you for your wonderful provision, the Savior, Jesus Christ, who's made salvation free and available to all who will come. As Isaiah says, Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts, let him come and drink of the fountain, the fountain of life the water of life. So if there's someone here today, whether they be assembled in our auditorium or listening via electronic means, 
that do not know you as Savior, may they trust you. May they put their full faith and confidence in Jesus Christ and know him aright and have eternal life. Help us who know you to live for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.